0: What is up? My name is Dr. Dale Okorodudu. I am a pulmonary and critical care physician in Dallas, Texas, also the author of How to Raise a Doctor, and you are listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine with Dr. Brian H. Williams.
1: Welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm Dr. Brian H. Williams. Thanks for tuning in. So our guest today is Dr. Dale Okorududu. He is a pulmonary critical care physician, serial entrepreneur, and an author. So we're going to spend some time today talking about his book, How to Raise a Doctor. But before I get to Dale, I just want to thank you all for following this journey uh, with me on the show. This is the last show for season one. After this, I'm going to take a break for the holidays, and I'll be back in January. So we've evolved from a one-hour show on the radio to where we are now as a podcast, and I'm still playing with the format, so I appreciate you uh, staying tuned in. But enough about the show. Let's get back to Dr. Dale. Dale, thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me.
1: All right, now, did I pronounce your last name correctly? I just want to make sure I got it right. So I always call you Dr. Dale.
0: But <laughs> Yeah, you actually did. I mean, when you said it, I was thinking, I was like, does, does Brian know how to say my last name? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> All right, well, that's probably, that's probably a host
1: fail to not confirm how to say your guest name ahead of, ahead of time, but I got it right. <laughs> you got it. All right, Dale, so, you know, I said, you know, you're, you're a doctor here in Dallas. You're the founder of Pre-Med Star, founder of Diverse Medicine Incorporated. You've helped, you know, thousands of students get into medical school. So, but beyond that, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, I mean, you hit you hit some of the high medical stuff. But, you know, beyond that, I like to first think of myself as somebody outside of being a physician, right? So I'm a husband. That's one of the things that's most important to me in my life, spend time with my wife, and make sure we have a great relationship. I'm a dad. love so being at all my kids' events and things of that sort. Um, I'm a person of faith, a strong person of faith. I have a Christian background, so I spend time with my church family. good friend. I just hope I'm all around good guy to people and try to help people as much as I can. Those are the things that are really, really important to me, and I like, I like getting those things off the table before I get into the whole I'm um, a doctor part, you know, because being a doctor is a, is a job for me, but I think having a work in life is more important than a job. My work in life is to really love on people, serve people, help people. And being a doctor is the way I do that.
1: Right, so I love it. Like your identity, you're not wrapped up in your identity as a doctor. You're a family man, your faith, and this is not who you are. It's something that you do.
0: Exactly. So, you know, I, I, if I lose my job, I'm going to be sad, but I'm not going to be one of those people who, who takes it too too much to heart. You know, there's other things you can do in life. So i got to keep those things separated and just realize the job is a blessing. I, I love my job. I love what I do but I don't want to be defined by that. So where did you grow up? I grew up Lake City, Texas. So Lake City, Texas is outside of Houston. So you have Houston, which everybody thinks about, like, big, big, big Houston. And then you have Clear Lake, which was actually annexed by Houston. So Clear Lake is part of Houston. And League City is right there next to Clear Lake. So part of Galveston County, but technically closer to Houston.
1: All right. And when you were growing up there, you was Clear Lake, is that correct?
0: Yeah, clearly. I grew up in League City, so City I grew League. up in
1: League City. Okay. Did you want to be a doctor back then when you were growing up?
0: You know, it's funny. So this this is gonna sound strange. I always tell people I didn't want to be a doctor I didn't necessarily want to be a doctor, right? But I had a sense that I was gonna be a doctor. I thought, you know, I say I knew I was gonna be a doctor, but I didn't necessarily want to be a doctor. It's the strangest thing. I've already tried explaining it, but you know whenever your child you can kinda of look to your future and you see what your life might be like. The life that I live now is really the life that I used to look at in the future and say, you know, my life could be like this. And I, you know, when I, when I was growing up, I loved that TV show Martin back in the days. I always thought, I mean, look at Martin, this cool, funny guy. He's got a beautiful wife. She's intelligent. Um, I love that show. That great I always thought myself, <laughs> yeah, myself thinking I'm gonna have a beautiful wife like that, and then I mixed it with the Cosby Show. So, you know, the life I saw was kind of those those two things. So, kind of a real fun, goofy life like Martin. Even though the Cosby Show had the goofiness too. And the professionalism and uh and uh the level of society that the Cosby show had. So maybe maybe the reason I just had a sense I was gonna be a doctor was 'cause the Cosby show probably, but um it's not that I even necessarily wanted to be a doctor. I as you asked me what I wanted to do, I wanted to play ball with everybody else, you know?
1: Right, right. So what what what, what inspired you to write this book, How to Raise a Doctor?
0: Yeah, so as you mentioned I do a lot of stuff with pre-medical students tons of stuff right so he's a diverse medicine inc we do pre-med star we do um our black men in white coats and all that stuff and with time you can imagine i've had so many interactions with students and parents with time more and, more and more parents will ask the question that's there how can i help my child become adopted and you know there was one particular time that after one of the black men in white Coats videos came out um a mother reached out to me on Facebook. And she asked a specific question. I think it was something to the effect that I'm a single mother. You know, I want my child to do well. How can I help him become a doctor? And for whatever reason, that one time really struck me as being – it impacted me more than other times. And I said, you know what, this is something that somebody needs to take the time, lay out a good answer, because tons of people have this question. A lot of people have the same question, right? So somebody needs to take the time and give them a good, solid answer. And I'll just tell you how I went about doing it because, obviously, I haven't raised a doctor. You know, my oldest boy right now is seven years old. I have a five-year-old and I have a two-year-old, so I haven't raised a doctor. Nor do I necessarily want to raise a doctor yet. So people say, oh, you wrote a book called How to Raise a Doctor. He wants his kids to be doctors. No, not necessarily. I want my kids to be happy and do what they want to do. And and really, I want them to be – I'm trying to teach them the power of economics and owning things in business, you know, uh if you're gonna be a doctor, that's fine, but you gotta own something. if you're gonna be a garbage man that's fine, but you' got to own the garbage company so I'm that's to teach key, man
1: teaching your kids that yeah. young i mean i've already my daughter's already opened up a bank account. I took her there, she' learning how to count her money and deposit the money and, you know she, she just turned eight I'm like, look, you gotta to keep your money straight
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean you have to do early because a lot of us probably weren't taught that at a young age, you know right um. So you know, that's, those are the things we need to be teaching. So more than my child being a doctor, I want my child to know how to do those things because, you know, those are things that are going to matter for a lot of broke doctors out there. But so the way that I, I did this, the book was I reached out to a lot of people, a lot of friends who were physicians, and I said, hey, can you connect me with your parents, connect me with your mom, connect me with your dad. And I made a survey. I sent out a bunch of surveys, and I called a bunch of parents, and I spoke to them, and I, you know, interviewed and did surveys. I ended up connecting with over 75 parents and physicians, and I said, "Hey, these are the questions I have." They answer the questions, and then I put all this, all that stuff together in a book, really, and it came out to be something beautiful. I, I laid it's on a background of kind of my life, my experiences, and mixed with all these other parents telling, "Hey, this is what I did for my child. This is how it works," and then other physicians saying, "Yeah, my parents did this," and it, it's really nice. And we were able to plug some some key things from that, you know.
1: Right, and then I saw you have several quotes for some of these parents throughout your book, and you divided it into three sections, right, perspective, character, and getting in. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell us how you got to that point and what that meant as far as getting your message across
0: in the book. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine when you're trying to put together so much information that you're getting, so getting all this information, all these surveys, and you know, all these interviews and trying to figure out how can I make sense of all this, you're looking for themes, and what what you go through and you do is you say, okay, X amount of people said this, very similar thing, so that's got to be important. X amount of people said this, so that's got to be important. You start bumping them in big categories, and at the end of the day, those are the categories that ultimately came out of it, Um, and – And honestly, I don't remember sitting down and thinking about how I I lumped them into those categories with those titles. But pretty much, I had those big themes, and when I just looked at the themes, what the message was, I said, "Well, okay, what this is saying is talking about perspectives." And then the next one was, "What this is saying, these guys are talking about character." And the third part is, you know, these guys are talking about you gotta have you gotta know the details, the numbers, how to get in. And I think it came out. I think it, it really makes sense the way it ended up coming out. Right,
1: and also throughout this whole thing, you, you mentioned earlier your faith, but you freely infused that into your book when you were writing, and I, I want to hear tell more about that because you know some people may not feel comfortable expressing their faith publicly, and also in something like this, in a book where people can have it for eternity. Did that cross your mind during, during the writing process?
0: Um, yeah, it crossed my mind, but I'm you know, I'm one of those people. I'm pretty. I'm pretty open. There's, you know, there's certain things people are taboo. And people say, oh, don't talk about this at work. Don't talk about this with your friends. You know, my deal is as long as we're not malicious, I have no problem talking about anything faith-based, political-based with anybody. To, I, I I, think we have to have the ability to have open forums and talk about those things in order for us to understand each other. Um, you know, I have no problem with a person. So I'm Christian. You know, I'm Christian and and that's that's my belief system. I have no problem talking to somebody of a Islam background about their belief system. It doesn't affect me, you know. Um, you tell me what you think. I'll tell you what I think. I love you. You love me. And we're not gonna we're not gonna dislike each other. I don't think. I hope not. So, you know, somebody if something is important to somebody, I think they should talk about it. I don't see any reason why not to talk about it. And you know, my faith is very important to me. It shapes my life. It shapes my thought process. And if I'm reading a book by somebody from I don't know who's Buddhist, and if Buddhism shapes the thought process, I think it's important that they put that in there so I can understand that background. So that's that's the way I approach life in general when I take care of my patients. Same thing. Whenever I, you, you know, probably you, you probably knew I was Christian before you read my book. I imagine from our interactions as friends. But, and right. Yeah. I just to me, just doesn't make sense. If something is core to who you are and important to you, you should you should not have reservations about talking about it. No matter right. what it is, you know. It's kinda of similar, it reminds me of you, um, and when with the after the police shooting happened and you know, the, the thing that you went up there, you're you're and you correct me from wrong, but what I took is your big message to everybody really was, you know, hey, race is an issue, people aren't talking about it, but you have to talk about it. because um, that's how we can do things better together. You know, you might not you don't know, like me, i not like you, but there's nothing wrong with us with us talking about it.
1: Yeah, that that was the message. Uh, however, it was lost on a lot of people, and there was certainly some uh, some backlash from that um which I, I can imagine that can trans- uh translate transfer to talk to discussions about religion uh, as well so i I applaud you on just being comfortable and just putting it out there in your book and there's another thing in your book that I want to talk about after the break where you you gave some advice. About sitting in the front row, which is, that's a stereotype for minority students, right? Is, you know, always sitting in the front, sitting in the front row together. I think there's actually a book out that talks about that. So I want to get your input on that. So if you're just tuning in, we're listening or visiting with Dr. Dale Okurudu. He is the author of the book, How to Raise a Doctor. He's also a serial entrepreneur. Um, we're going to be back in a moment. And if you have to take off, remember, you can always just go to BrianWilliamsMD.com, get caught up. That's Brian with an I. You're listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Welcome back to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm Dr. Brian H. Williams. We are visiting today with Dr. Dale Okorodudu. He is the author of the book How to Raise a Doctor. He's a pulmonary and critical care specialist in Dallas, Texas, and the founder of several nonprofits, I guess not, well, the state organizations that are geared towards helping students get into medical school. A mentor to thousands. So, Dale, we've been talking about your book, How to Raise a Doctor. And before the break, we mentioned uh, the advice you gave about sitting in the front row. And I just I stuck out as a stereotypical way to describe minority students that are achieving higher education. They're in the front row sitting together uh, separated from the rest of their class. So tell us about that piece of advice and what it means to you.
0: Man, that's uh, that's easily one of the biggest pieces of advice for success, in my opinion, to do well. Because the front row is a powerful spot. So many things happen in the front row of class. So many so many little benefits that a lot people don't think about. Um, so I'll just go through a couple of them. One thing, which for me was always very important, was it gives you confidence. gives you confidence when you sit in the front row. And what I mean by that is when you sit in a lecture, everybody has questions. There's, if you don't have a question to ask, then you're not paying attention enough to the lecture. So everybody has questions, but if you're sitting in the back of the class, when you raise your hand to ask that question, what you see is, Every If you went to a big university, I went to the University of Missouri, so our lecture halls, you know, 200, 300 people. When you raise your hand up, you get 200 people turn around and stare at you, and that's really uncomfortable. But if you're sitting in the front of the class, you raise your hand up, you know, you don't know who's looking at you. It doesn't matter to you. It's kind of almost like it's just you and the professor. It's a lot easier to engage with the professor, a lot easier to ask these questions. And beyond, so there's tons of other benefits, but beyond that, another great benefit is the fact that the professors know who sits in the front row. Um, especially if you're black, especially if you're a black male, (laughs) you know, they're not going to forget you. They know if you sit in the front row of class. And it means something to them, right? Because then if you ask a question, sit in the front row. Subconsciously, they're looking out to help you. Um, They might not do it on purpose. Same thing is in the book I talk about. I think I talk about going to office hours as well. I have another book called Pre-Med Mondays, and I can't remember if I talk about the office hours and how to raise a doctor or not, but – you know, going to office hours is another important thing. When you go to your professor's office hours, it does a lot of great things for you. You get to learn, ask them the questions, but on a subconscious level, it makes them like you a little bit more because you take the time to come meet with them personally. And sitting in the front row of class does the same thing, and there's a lot of intangible benefits that you won't appreciate until it's time for you to get a rec letter or, you know, time for, for you to get some sort of sponsorship in some other way. And I just think that's instrumental. I think everybody is serious about going to medical school. If you if you should do it anyways, but definitely if you need a little boost in your confidence, a little boost in your performance, I would encourage you just to try it.
1: Right? You know, I never thought about that. If you're in the front, if you're in the back, and you ask a question, everyone turns around to look at you.
0: Uh,
1: that that's interesting. I didn't I didn't consider that, but that that could be intimidating. You're right. Yeah, and the
0: other thing is that I think when you sit in the back, you're e- obviously easily more distracted because I imagine it's the same as it was back in my day, but people have their laptops out and. You know, back in the days, those people were on Facebook and stuff. Now might be people might be on, I don't know, whatever things are online now. So if you're sitting in the back, you can see what everybody's doing on their computer. You can tell who's not paying attention. That becomes a distraction. So instead of watching the professor, you're looking at other people's computer screens and all sorts of things, whereas if you're sitting in the front, all those distractions are behind you.
1: Well, so, you know, you're an African-American male in medicine, so that makes you a role model whether you want to embrace that or not. But the work you do, you you're not limiting yourself to just minority students. Is that correct?
0: That is correct, yes for not exclusive at all. Not not exclusive.
1: So in so in the book is not directed towards minorities, it's about anybody who wants to get into medical school.
0: Yeah, definitely it's for anybody who wants to get into medical school, but you know, just by the nature of who I am, of course there's there's a bend towards things that pertain to minorities um and that's just by the nature of the uh, it's a it's a passion of mine to help people who look like me again into the field of medicine for a, a variety of reasons but it's definitely not exclusive there's quotes there's parents who are white there's parents who are asian uh, so there's a book from of people from diverse backgrounds i'd say it's talent mining i believe that to get the best talent you have to come you have to bring diversity to the table so the book there's talent mining i reached out to parents of all backgrounds physicians of all backgrounds
1: now, so, I mean, you you founded Black Men in White Coats back when you were, you, you were a medical student or a resident at Duke when you founded this?
0: I was a resident at Duke, so it was 2013, and I was a third-year resident in internal medicine at Duke.
1: So you, have and was that, your, was that your first company, our first endeavor,
0: well, I should so, say? Uh, diverse medicine was 2011. Okay. So I, I started diverse medicine, and then. Uh, double AMC put out that report, and you know, most people don't realize it, but most people think the first double AMC report came out. I think it was the, the big article that came out, I think it was 2015, and it talked about there were more doctors, there were more black male applicants to medical school in 1978 than there were in 2014. So most people think that the first report was actually that report. Um, but I think a few, quite a few people actually missed that the original, I don't know if it was original or not, but an earlier report came out in 2013. And before everybody saw it, compared 1978 to 2014, the WMC actually put one out that said 1978 compared to 2011. And that's the one that I saw. And right. after I saw that, that's when I put out, um, that's when we started Black Men and White Coats. So
1: because of your affiliation with that, do you, do you come across any challenges in needing to explain that you are a an inclusive mentor, no matter what your racial, ethnic background? Or is that not even an issue?
0: Um, for me, it's not really an issue. Yeah, it's not an issue to me um, whatsoever. And I guess it's not an issue to me because, you know, the the people that come to me are the people that come to me. I don't have to, I don't have to necessarily go out and find people that need to be mentored. We have countless people come to us to be mentored. So, um, you know, if it was something where I was trying to go out and find people to mentor, it might be an issue. Maybe somebody would say, well, you me only mentor – Black man or something of that sort, but just because the need for mentorship is so great, there's the demand is high. So I have a billion mentees coming to us all the time. So um, you know we're not we're not we're not hurting to go out there and and find people to mentor, I should say.
1: All right, I kind of got off track with your book here. I apologize, but now we're talking about black men and white coats. You have a summit coming up soon. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about that real quick?
0: Yeah, so we're doing a Black Men and White Coast Youth Summit. It's going to be on February 16th, 2019, on the campus of UT Southwest Medical It's a free event. And, you know, for years I've been wanting to do this. You know, we started Black Men and White Coast in 2013, and we've done tons of videos, which have got, you know, tons of views and rave reviews, and, you know, we get tons of people reaching out to us. And all that was great. And we still do the mentoring, and all that's great too, but we've been wanting to do this summit for quite some time. And I'll tell you, in April I got invited by a hospital in Memphis, Baptist Memorial Healthcare. some great folks out there. They invited me out to speak, and they wanted to do a Black and White Coat Summit. So I said, sure, that'd be great. I love the idea. I've been wanting to do this. And, you know, give me an opportunity to see how you guys do it. So they did that, and it was phenomenal. They did a great job. Um, it was amazing, and it gave me a very good model that we could use. So, you know, I think, if I recall, I think it was about 250 people or so were there, so we're taking that and we're really gonna blow it up and make it a pretty big deal. So I checked this morning, last last I checked we have about four hundred, I think forty seven or something people registered for the summit already. And you know, we're still two months out. So the goal is to get a thousand people registered, I'm not sure you know, people register, who knows how many actually show, but we're definitely on pace to get over a thousand people to register for the event. And it's gonna be a pretty big deal. It's gonna be fun, gonna do mentorship. Exposure to the healthcare, networking. It's gonna be it's gonna be a good day, a very impactful day. Hopefully, we'll we'll change some lives.
1: All right, I was, I was about to ask like the people show what 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 can they expect, but you you beat me to the punch. All right, so back so back to the back, <laughs> back to the book. You know, I I like to write myself, so whenever I have an author on the show, and actually your book was. Back when I was still doing the Book of the Must Club, you were featured in September, and, of course, it took till December 4th to get together.
0: So <laughs> just, but We tried, we, though. We tried.
1: Yeah, everybody knows,
0: bad weather. One time we almost <laughs> got flooded. It was bad weather.
1: <laughs> and try so. to sync up two doctor schedules is, is near is near impossible sometimes. But, but here we are, and I like to take advantage of, like, tell me about your writing process. Like, what kind of, yeah, just talk about your writing process.
0: Man, so you, blog, you know, awesome.
1: You've written a couple books. You blog. Talk to us about that.
0: Yeah. So, all right. I'll tell you, my writing process is interesting. So, I, I, you know, I wrote I two books so far: How to Raise a Doctor and Premed Mondays. And I'll tell you, Premed Mondays because that was interesting. Um, so, so How to Raise a Doctor just regular writing style. So, I wake up, do some writing before I go to bed, do some writing, you know, things of like that sort. Just always constantly writing a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit. Go back, revise it. You know, basic stuff, but. Pre-Med Mondays was interesting because when I was doing that, what I would do is I, tr- I would try to write in my bed at night before I went to sleep. It would be dark in the room. My wife's in the bed with me, and I had my laptop in my lap, and I'm sitting you know, trying to write. My wife would roll over, and she would look, and the light would be glaring in her face, and she'd get upset. Oh, like, I stopped writing. <laughs> so I stopped writing in the bed. Get out of the bed. And, you know, I didn't want to leave my room, and I not have anywhere else to go. So then what I would actually do is I would go to the closet, and sit on the floor <laughs> and the, and I would sit on the floor in the closet. Actually, you know what? I think this was actually "How to Raise a Doctor." How to Raise a Doctor. One of the, one of the books. I would go in the closet and I would sit on the floor, and I'd be in there at, at nighttime, at like at like midnight, one a.m. and i was sitting there just typing get the book in the closet at night. I'm in the dark, all by my lonesome. Um. So that was that was one of them, and I can't remember what's what now. But I know for med Mondays, actually, I actually dictated almost that entire book. Um, oh really. Yeah, so I got my phone and I, I, and I might have made it a lot harder that way. I don't know. But what I did was pretty much I just got my phone and I just, you know, so people look at pre-med Mondays and they think that all that stuff was contemplated. And, and then what I, I tell people, I wrote that book in a week. So I got in my, I got in my closet. I dictated. I would go in there. And so people who haven't read pre Mondays, there's a book of uh, 52 mentorship letters to pre-medical students. So every week, every Monday, students have a, a mentorship letter for me telling them like, I don't know, five, five reasons to consider research or something like that. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that pretty much need to know to be successful that I go over in that book. So I just went when I would just get my phone, I would just dictate it. And I did the whole thing in a week. And people would say, wow, you, you wrote a book in a whole week. But what people don't realize is, even though I dictated in a week, it wasn't written in a week because that was like a decade's worth of knowledge and years of being intentional about how do I mentor and learning how to mentor. That's the reason I could do that in that short time period and just think it. It's not as if, you know, anybody can just go and do this in a week, you know. Right. That was Ten years' worth of knowledge, worth of thinking, worth of strategizing. And because I've done it so many times, you know, my 10,000 hours, you know, I've put all that stuff in. I, was, I could just get a phone on, I could just rip it all off and make it make sense. So that's how I did that book, and that, I thought that was a pretty interesting way to get something done. But then it was a complete beast to go back and edit it, because you can imagine when you're dictating how many errors you get in that So
1: Right, right, right. Go back and edit. All right, well, that's some good advice for some, some writers out there. Is you, can, you, can dictate your, you can dictate your book into your phone, yep. curl up on the floor of your closet. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right, Dr. Dale, author of How to Raise a Doctor, Wisdom from Parents Who Did It. I want to thank you for spending your time with us today. Now, remember, you're listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine. This is available anywhere you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. I do mean anywhere. Uh, So please, you're listening, but maybe your family and friends are not, so share it with them. And you can always keep track of me at brianwilliamsmd.com. That's Brian with an I. And as far as social media, I am most active on Twitter. You can find me there at M D. Dale, where can we find you after the show?
0: A few different places. So if you're a pre medical student, premedstar.com is where I do all my pre medical work now. So if you have any questions and need any help of anything, any sort, we have a whole school of people on premedstar.com. We got some med school recruiters, we got some companies, all sorts of stuff on there, so you can ask me questions there. For social media otherwise, I, I, I do a little bit of that on Twitter. Not, not as good as I should be, but um, at Dr. Dale M.D. You have to spell out the word doctor. Um, LinkedIn, for professional folks, I very much enjoy LinkedIn. I think it's a very good platform. So you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, I'm somewhere on Facebook. I'll do as but somewhere on there.
1: We uh, definitely okay. follow
0: Black Men and White Coats as well, so I believe we are Team BMWC. I think that's what we are on Twitter. So
1: and one last time, the date for the Black Men and White Coats Summit is February
0: February sixteenth, two thousand nineteen. So, oh yeah, so to register for that, go to whitecoats dot org backslash summit. You can register for it there. You'll find the link that'll take you to the registration page.
1: Excellent. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the show today. I want to wish you all happy holidays. And I recognize that the holidays are not always happy for everyone, so if that is you, I want to wish you peace and love and strength to make it through the holidays to the new year. I am Dr. Brian H. Williams, and you have been listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Until next time.